Hi, Ginger. You asked me uh, the other day about a speech that I always remember. And I've got to say, it was uh, Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister, her speech on misogyny. I mean, it was an amazing speech. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. A really excellent speech to give as, a, as Australia's first female Prime Minister. I was really uh, taken by this speech. I can still recall exactly where I was the first time I heard this. It was riveting. It was David Morrison in uniform, down the barrel of the camera, being super direct. The standard you walk past is the standard you accept. Here is a senior leader being really clear that upholding the values and working together is critical to success. But I know what opportunity means to many in those rural and regional areas of Tasmania. Hi Ginger, you were asking about memorable speeches and for me one of them is Jackie Lambie's speech about university fee increases. And I'll be damned if I'll vote to tell those kids in those rural and regional areas of Tasmania that they deserve to have their opportunities suffocated in a way they'd never even know. For me, I grew up on a farm in regional Victoria on Yorta Yorta lands and I was the first in my family to finish high school, first to go to uni and the first to finish graduate studies. It was scholarships and hospital jobs that made it a less risky, privileged pathway of possibility for me. And so when the government framed education as a cost rather than an investment, it felt like intergenerational theft, entrenching further inequity, and especially from leaders who largely had a free education. These are all powerful speeches. Is there another one that moves you like this? My spine tingles when I hear Winston Churchill say, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Of course, I wasn't alive back in 1940 when he first gave that famous speech, but there still is something about it, even now. There's something that just makes me sit up and pay attention and really think about the power of words. Whether it's a brilliant political speech or words that inspire us for a cause or to help right a wrong, is there a secret source to all of this? What is the secret source that gives a speech the power to win hearts and win minds? I'm not sure if there is. I mean, I'd probably be making much more money and not working in universities <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I knew what the secret source was. And I think that it changes over time. Sean Scalmer is a professor of history at the University of Melbourne and he's also a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. The expectations of an audience shift over time and our sense of what's compelling and what's persuasive shifts over time. So if you went back to the late 19th century, a politician's speech would be sometimes several hours in length and that was seen to be part of the appeal and part of the experience. Yeah, I don't know many people who would happily sit through one politician's speech for hours. Remember in 2010 when Federal Independent MPs Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott announced they would give their balance of power to Julia Gillard's Labor? Rob Oakeshott kept us on tenterhooks for 17 minutes before finally confirming what we all knew that he was there to say. And Australians were not impressed. This is Seriously Social, I'm Ginger Gorman, and today on the podcast, what makes a speech, especially a political speech, impactful, memorable and stirring? And why does it always feel so long between those times when we hear a good one?
we probably tend, especially those you know who've been intellectually trained, want to compare it with a rational debate or with perhaps like a presentation of a case to a judge where logic and order and evidence are the primary criteria that will apply to whether it's a good or a bad contribution. Whereas what an election speech is, a campaign speech is, is an exercise in persuasion in which the capacity to, to draw on emotions, you know, is part of what makes it successful. There's also the fact that part of what you're doing in a campaign speech is you're not just trying to win an argument about you should vote for me, but you're actually trying to present yourself as an object of admiration and sometimes adoration. While Sean doesn't buy into my secret source theory, he says good campaign speeches usually have a couple of things in common. It's a topic he knows a lot about. Several years ago, he authored a book on the subject. One is taking the audience seriously. So addressing yourself directly to the audience and having faith in their reason and their conscience and appealing to that. Take, for example, Gough Whitlam's 1972 campaign speech. If you went back and listened to that, you'd hear Whitlam talk about all the things that uh, he said that his government would want to do. And then at one point, partway through the speech, he sort of pauses and he says, I need your help. And he runs through what he invites, the participation, the enthusiasm, and of course, the votes of uh, those who are listening to him. So I think that idea that a speech is not sort of the delivery of wisdom from on high, but rather is inviting a response, a reciprocation from the audience is enormously important to an effective political speech. And then the other thing that I'd I'd note about campaign speeches and what separates them from other forms of oratory is the willingness to use very direct speech and demotic speech and to not be constrained by formality. A democratic speech in an age of democracy is more likely to be direct and, of course, to be understood by its listeners. If you're about to take me to task for lumping campaign speeches like Whitlam's in with other political speeches like Churchill's, don't worry. Sean already pulled me up for that. You know, being an annoying academic, one thing I'd say <laughs> is that is that we're talking about speeches for different purposes. So for Churchill's speech, you know, he is trying to summon a response to an incipient invasion and trying to rouse the people to oppose Hitler. So that's quite different than a campaign speech where you're trying to win votes. And then different again is a speech like some of the stirring speeches mentioned earlier, Julia Gillard's misogyny speech or Jackie Lambie's speech in the Senate about university fees. Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins aren't politicians, obviously, but their addresses to the National Press Club in February 2022 are two recent examples of truly moving and electric speeches. They're not campaigning for office, they're campaigning to convince their listeners about the importance of a cause. There are things that all great speeches have in common, and one is a carefulness with language and, and an attention to, to rhetoric. And I think in the case of Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, one thing I think they throw into relief is the ways in which they speak from their own experience and they draw upon their own experience to ground their statements. And so that gives their speeches much more resonance than I guess what many of us think of as a kind of devalued contemporary political speech with a capital P, which is much more likely to have been market tested, to have been passed over to make sure that no no one was offended and as a result is bleached of any of the kind of passion and, and personality that are necessary in order to persuade. 
I mean, that is a real problem in modern political speech, isn't it? That everything's been polled and market tested. And we know as punters when we listen that this is not an authentic speech that we're hearing. And it almost makes us turn away. It's, in my view, a big reason for political apathy. Why have we got to that place, Sean? One reason is the, the fear of a mistake. So much of the reportage of a campaign, of the narrative of a campaign, is around as if it's a horse race. Um, so who's ahead? Who's, beho- <laughs> who's behind? Um, but but also the idea that someone has has made a great mistake, and if someone is seen to make a great mistake, then that becomes the the basis of reportage and of next questions and of journalists framing of oh well things are going badly for campaign X or campaign Y. So that fear of making mistakes is, is like a straitjacket, I think, for our leaders. And I think you see that when you see leaders who are, in, who are often seen as good communicators before they take on the highest office. I'm thinking of Julia Gillard and Malcolm Turnbull. Both of them were contrasted when they weren't Prime Minister with, with Prime Minister, and they were seen to be more authentic, more honest, more persuasive. And then immediately when they became Prime Minister, they seem to be stilted, uh, controlled, and all of the things that, that people react against. So there's an enormous pressure on our political leaders in the context of contemporary media cycles, and I think that plays a role. I think also, if you think back to the textures of public life, when our political parties were mass parties with mass involvement, in order to make a career, you needed to be an effective speaker. That was part of the way in which you rose up through the ranks But in our contemporary party system, it's much more technocratic. It's much more a passage from being a staffer or someone inside the machine to the next spot uh, that you you might take. And so those skills of persuasion, you don't have to develop in order to uh, enter the upper echelons of politics. So I think we, we sort of, in a sense, we reap what we sow. So interesting listening to you talk about that and it's making me think about, for example, Paul Keating's Redfern speech, but even how John Howard addressed the crowds after the Port Arthur massacre. Those were often deeply authentic speeches that didn't seem to have that blandness that you're talking about. That comparison shows us something that both of those speeches have in common, which is they're both delivered to a live audience that is, to begin with, critical of of both speakers. So if you think back to the Redfern Park speech, one of the things that you notice is the the disengagement and, in some cases, the sort of hostility of some of the Indigenous people who have gathered to listen to what they expect to be a conventional speech. And then you hear their changing reactions as they recognise the significance of what uh, Paul Keating is saying. It begins, I think, with an act of recognition recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. We took the traditional lands and smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases and the alcohol. We committed the murders. We took the children from their mothers. We practiced discrimination and exclusion. Hey Ginger, it's Anna Hartley here from Brisbane. 
Um, I love this question. It actually really got me thinking. And as a journalist of many years, I have read and heard a lot of speeches. They thrive when we fight amongst ourselves and weaponize all of our vulnerabilities. I have to say, Grace Tame's speech is the first one that came to mind and I just watched it before giving you a buzz. And it has the same effect as it did when I first heard it. Every voice matters. Just as the impacts of evil are borne by all of us, so too are solutions born of all of us. I was abused by a male teacher. Even if you just heard her voice and heard the words, it was impactful. And if you watched it on mute and saw her expression and the emotion and saw her presentation, it was impactful too. Let's step back a few years before Howard and Keating and Whitlam, even before Churchill. Sean said in the late 19th century that politician speeches would sometimes be several hours in length. But how did that change without YouTube, TikTok or even the wireless radio? Who brought those changes to our shores? Before the early 19th century, the ways in which most elections were held was that there was a notion that, well, for a start, the franchise is highly restricted. So it's only men uh, it's, and it's men who possess a great deal of property who can vote and who can stand for office. And that influences how we think about it as a, a campaign because uh, the campaign is primarily waged by bribery by what was called treating, giving people usually alcohol, and by violence, by having a kind of gang on your side who could compel others to vote for you. Now, that begins to change in the early 19th century in the United States because it's a different context, because white men, irrespective of property, are now able to vote. And so that means that in order to win elections, those old techniques aren't going to work in quite the same way. So it's in that context that what they call stump speaking becomes a new kind of campaign method. And it's it's really in the states of Kentucky and Tennessee and the southwest of the republic, as it's then configured, that candidates begin to make speeches in their own favour. And there's particular things about those communities that probably mean that it develops here first. First of all, that they did extend the franchise beyond Uh, the rich more quickly than elsewhere. These are communities without uh, mass literacy, so you can't rely upon written appeals in order to try and win an election. And it's also that they have traditions of religious oratory outdoors. That habit of religious oratory then is sort of transposed into campaigning. And it's amazing that this kind of a speech was unconventional, whereas now it's par for the course, and that when it came to both Britain and Australia, we were so resistant to that idea of the American campaign speech. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's what struck me as well. So it's, it's yeah, in the, in the early part of the 19th century, this takes off in parts of the United States, but it's sort of 60 years later that it begins to take off in Australia, and it's sort of 90 uh, years later when it begins to take off in Great Britain. So it's a very, very slow process. It takes so long because of the political assumptions that underpin parliamentary government in Britain and in Australia. So the assumption there is that what you want from a representative is someone who is an existing member of the elite and who is willing to serve their fellows, is willing to serve the community. So 
if you were to actually campaign actively for office, then that would almost disqualify you from being one of these people because it would admit that you didn't necessarily want to serve others but you wanted to get into parliament yourself. And so they associated in Britain the idea of ambition for office and self-seeking and the professional politician were all associated with the United States and that was seen to be, you know, vulgar, um, <laughs> uh, you know, money-grubbing money and Britain thought of itself as above those things or at least the British elite thought that they were above those things. It was Charles Gavin Duffy, an Irish radical who brought stump speeches and campaigning culture to Australia. Sean writes about him in his book On the Stump. He was a leader of what was called the Young Ireland Movement and he comes to Australia as a political celebrity for the Irish. And he actually comes to Australia saying, well, we don't have self-government in Ireland. I want to be able to prove that the Irish are capable of self-government by participating in government in Australia. Eventually, Duffy is elected to Parliament, and in the early 1870s, he became the Premier of the Colony of Victoria. But Sean told me this is an age when there aren't really clearly identified parties. So just because you are Premier doesn't mean that you will hang on to the top job. And so he has to try and find a way to try and encourage or threaten those other parliamentarians to keep supporting him. And what he decides to do is to go on a banqueting tour, an electioneering tour of the, of the state of Victoria. So he organises, <laughs> the, the main people who support him are the people who live in rural Victoria on the edge of what are the train lines that he has extended. He goes out to these mass banquets in all of the old Goldfields towns. Sometimes he's met by hundreds of people and he gives a series of speeches. Now, these speeches are seen to be highly controversial because the rule or the norm is that if you're in Parliament, you should only give a speech within your own electorate because you're representing your own electorate. So Duffy breaks convention by travelling all over the colony making these speeches, a bit like the election buses of today, except I guess maybe they were horse-drawn back then. He's um, accused of being importing American methods. So this method doesn't help him to win on to, to stay in power, but what it does is it encourages his treasurer, Graham Berry, and it's Graham Berry about four years later who then begins to use the stump speech and also to try and build up a, a mass political party, and he develops these two things together. And through uh, campaign speeches and through developing a mass party, he wins what was then the, the greatest majority in Australian political history and becomes the leading figure in Victorian politics. And all around Australia, people are watching what Berry's doing. Um, and in other colonies, they say, well, we have to adopt these methods too, even if we think they're a bit distasteful. Mass party politics is familiar to most democracies and definitely most Western democracies. But I can't help wondering if the two-party system, which we see in Australia, the UK, and also the US, is beginning to fray. And also, if the politicians aligned with the major parties are too cautious or too beholden to their pre-selectors and donors, who will be left to deliver risky but rousing campaign speeches? And how will a bored or disengaged electorate reward them? Take Donald Trump as a recent example of a politician who threw caution to the wind, proudly ruffled feathers throughout his own party and, according to the fact-checkers at the Washington Post, 
told more than 30,000 misleading claims in his four-year presidency, but he didn't seem to care. And for the people who voted for him, he was a breath of fresh air. When many of us think about Trump, we think about him as a singular figure. Um, And of course, he is in many ways. But when you track the history of campaign speech, what you find is that the the grounds on which Trump was criticised are exactly reproduced 150 years ago in other criticisms that were made of other campaign speakers. So one of the things I look at in my book is an essay by Thomas Carlyle called The Stump Speaker, published in 1850. And here he is, you know, the great Scottish essayist, imagining and reviewing political life and saying, isn't it terrible? We have now the emergence of this figure who is not concerned with truth, is not concerned with morality, will say anything to flatter an audience, will lie and will win doing so. And Carlyle is enormously alienated from it. He sees the stump speaker as a symbol of the degeneration of public life. So I guess the message is that that when we think about a campaign speech, we may want to, and it may be valuable, of course, to, to hold people to account for when they lie and to deprecate their attempts to whip up people's emotions and passions in, in a partisan cause. But this is what the form allows. Well, I hope the leader of the opposition has got a piece of paper and he is writing out his resignation. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. That's what he needs. Let's go I refuse to be the vote that tells poor kids out there, or those sitting on that fine line, no matter how gifted, no matter how determined you are, might as well dream a little cheaper, because you're never going to make it, because you can't afford it. I remember him saying, don't tell anybody. I remember him saying, don't make a sound. Well, hear me now, using my voice, amongst a growing chorus of voices that will not be silenced. Let's make some noise, Australia! It's the sense in which someone is speaking much more directly from their experience that uh, allows the speech to, to have an impact. As the campaign speech has become, and as the sort of party has become more and more an agent of control, and as our political leaders have become more and more risk-averse, that's made moments in which those things are laid aside and which people speak much more directly, much more unusual and sometimes much more impactful. Those kinds of speeches are those that then become hinges for cultural and political change. Well, I, for one, hope our future is filled with more engaging, uplifting and honest speeches that stay with us long after they've been spoken. Did we miss a speech that has inspired you or helped you consider the latest speeches you've heard in a different light? If so, let us know via our socials. We are always keen to engage with you. Thanks for listening to Seriously Social. I'm Ginger Gorman. If you're enjoying the podcast, one of the best ways to support us is to subscribe. And if you listen through Apple Podcasts, drop us a review in there as well. We love reading them and it helps other people find us. Seriously Social is produced by Kim Lester, engineered by Mark Gargledonk, aka Baldy, and executive produced by Sue White and Bonnie Johnson. It's an initiative of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. 
Next time, dictators, what drives them and how do dictatorships really work behind the scenes? See you soon.